Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in, it's David Summers, and here we go, it's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America, as told by the stud, whose family started the profession over 100 years ago. So, let's step back into the ring and back into time. Let's get wall to wall, treetop tall, with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, Ron, how's your week? What's going on? Oh, man, doing good. Uh, doing nice. Uh, getting a little warmer, thank goodness, man. <laughs> a little cold here, uh, like a lot of other places in the country. And, but uh, it's uh, finally warming up a little bit. And uh, I think uh, we're looking for the next snow. That's the deal. <laughs> well, that's the life in the Smoky Mountains here in southeast Alabama. We can go through four seasons in one week. And I think we did that this last week. We had, we had rain, we had extreme cold. Then it was it hit 71 days. So anyway, Hey, listen, welcome back everybody to the next studcast. And I want to thank those that have sent messages to Ron's social media sites about the new series that is called hidden history lessons. So we're just getting into them. And in this studcast, we're going to be continuing the ride that we began last episode, and it's about your grandfather, Roy, setting up one of the first ever boxing and wrestling commissions in Tennessee way back. I mean, in 1935, Ron. Yeah, I mean, uh, way back. That is quite a few years. So in this studcast, Dave, I'm going to be taking that boxing and wrestling commission. It was started by my grandfather, Roy. 43 years earlier, you know, uh, out of a, uh, you know, out of, co- out of commission, uh, basically we're going to put it out of commission permanently compliments of the state of Tennessee, uh, sunshine committees they had in 1978 in which they were looking at all types of different, uh, co- commissions and things in the state that might not be necessary. So what Roy had created had become uh, something he never would have recognized, you know, I think uh, it'd probably be me proud of me, man, to, for finding out uh, how these this actual commission that he set up how it actually ended. Wow, that's cool. All right, and listen, before we get writing, I want to make a remark about the the new when wrestling was wrestling post that I see popping up on your Facebook sites and Twitter now known as X. By the way, I see those from time to time, and one of the last ones. I was really blown away to find out that you had, and I know you've done a lot of flying in your time, but you ended up sitting, sitting next to Ronald Reagan. 
the former, the president of the United States on a flight January 25th, 1973 from L.A. to San Francisco. And he was governor of California at the time. Yeah, I mean, that's it was crazy, Dave. I can tell you that, you know, and uh, coincidentally, you know, that day, January 25th, 1973, that's almost exactly to the day seven years earlier. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to be talking about this mobile cart later on in this stud cast. So it's right in that same time frame. And uh, the fact that, uh, you know, uh, that the governor, Ronald Reagan, was flying commercial, that tells me a lot about how much things have changed today, right? <laughs> how many governors fly commercial today, do you think? I know, right? <laughs> so, and, and it was a great flight. I, I had a chance to tell him, uh, my father, you know, that my father named me Ronald after him. Wow. And Dad was a big movie goer. He loved movies back in the day. And he had just watched a Ronald Reagan movie uh, back in 1948, uh, just a day or so before I was born. Now, that's where he got the name of Rob. Wow. And then when Robert was born, he had seen a movie about Robert Mitchum with Robert Mitchum in it. And that's how Rob got his name. Oh, so, that's cool. So the funny thing was, man, he when he found out, you know, what I did for a living on the flight and, uh, and why I was on the flight going to, to get my visa, there in downtown uh, San Francisco to make my trip to Australia to wrestle there. Mm -hmm. He had more questions about me and my life and family than I did about him. I mean, I never got to ask him anything. He was like, wow, tell me about this. What the heck is this all about? Wow. You know, and that, that seems exactly like who he is that he wants to know about you. And I, I think he was, he was that, that kind of guy. Hey, listen, why did, why didn't you whip your phone out and get a picture? <laughs> I don't think I had a phone back in those days. This was 73, man. Oh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of phones, man. We didn't have phones that we could do that with. Okay. You know, I probably yeah. would have. I'd have had yeah. to have a selfie or something. Yeah. Man, yeah. Hey, Governor Holstill. I know. I know. That's, uh, that's one of the things we absolutely take advantage of today. I really like those when wrestling was wrestling post and you can find those. You can definitely find those on Ron's Facebook page and his Twitter now known as X page too. They're really interesting, but back to meeting Ronald Reagan. I, I think I said it on the last studcast. You really lived a remarkable life, uh, not just with the folks that you ran into, but just the situations and everything growing up that you've told us so much about over time. So, so where are, where are we going to ride on this one? Well, we're going to continue with uh, part two, basically of the boxing and wrestling commissions, the, the hidden history lesson, uh, so in this one, I was going to uh, go into the Capitol building in Nashville, Tennessee in 1978. And I had been invited because they, they had these committees uh, in, the, in the, at the state capitol in Tennessee during that time frame. And I was invited to come and speak in front of the state sunshine committee. Uh, and there were going to be state representatives looking at the long-term commissions like the Boxing and Wrestling Commission that Roy and the governor of Tennessee had created, like you said, way back in 1935. So uh, that commission had gotten totally out of control in the 43 years since Roy had basically created it and started it in operation. So we're going to also take a look at, uh, at uh, January the 29th, 1980, Mobile Cart. 
with three championship matches on it and the return of the longtime Gulf Coast star, Don Carson. And I'm going to describe the TV show promoting the card, the results of the matches, the attendances for the three major cities in the territory as well. And then hopefully, Dave, hopefully we'll have enough time for another learning tree question. Oh, cool deal. So, uh, listen, uh, you know I'm a fan of Don Carson, the wrestling pro, Dick Dunn. Those were the superstars when I was a kid in the Dothan, Alabama area, and that's just how it was. So that, that's fun that, that Don Carson is back in the picture. All right, so obviously, to me, this sounds like another tremendous stud cast. Starting with you coming to the state capitol in Nashville 43 years after your grandfather created his first boxing and wrestling commission. Yeah, so so my grandfather created it, and I came to kill it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, 43 so, <laughs> years later. All right, so now, now the title's making sense. The title of this one, Don Carson Arrives and Killing Commissions. So that's kind of exactly what happened, Dave. Uh, you know, and I'd been invited to speak in front of the Tennessee Sunshine Committee. Uh, obviously, they're taking a look, in this case, at the State Boxing and Wrestling Commission. And uh, over the po- past four decades since it was created, the one in Tennessee, this commission had begun to take advantage of their stature in every way they could. The original commission, 1935, was set up to get 4% of the gross gate of every live wrestling event and boxing. wasn't much boxing, mostly wrestling. But And by 1978, that figure had grown from 4% of the net gate, of the gross gate, to 10%. Uh, so, you know, and that was far more benefit than what this wrestling commission was ever doing to help wrestling business. You know, so over the last 40 years, uh, they, required, uh, they required licenses. Wrestlers had to have a license. Referees, managers, promoters, uh, everybody that was involved had to pay out of the personal pocket to have a license. And uh, so, uh, Mm -hmm. and over that 40 years, those licenses for the wrestlers, referees, managers, promoters, all those, all those individuals, they were four times higher than they were when the commission was created in 1935. Wow. So the officials handling handling the commission, they were making their own rules. By this point, they were adding new, uh, new ideas or whatever they wanted and um, maybe worst of all, not a single person on these commission, on the Boxing and Wrestling Commission, had any experience of any kind with either boxing or wrestling. <laughs> okay. It's like crazy, like, huh? It's like being in government. Okay. All right. So <laughs> were were any of the other promoters in the state like I've heard you mention before, Nick Goulas, Jerry Jarrett, were they there as well? No, uh, it was only me, you know, and, uh, and, and they were invited like I was. And I, and I asked them about it because, uh, you know, uh, before I went, said, you guys are going to be there. And they, they both told me, they said, basically, they were too concerned that the Boxing and Wrestling Commission uh, would go after them. Hmm. If they didn't get to kill it, then they would go after them. And if they, if they showed up to speak against the commission, they were afraid that, hey, Look, man, if, if you don't kill the commission, they're going to kill you. They're going mm. to destroy you over there, right, on the eastern side of Tennessee. So what was going on in the state was totally wrong, and they knew it, but they were too afraid to rock the boat, man. 
So, so I had done my research and I came prepared, man, when I got there at the state capitol that day in 1978, summer of 1978, I came prepared to kill the Boxing and Wrestling Commission. That's interesting because your dad thought, okay, let's get him in here. And he had his reasons for wanting a commission that were in his favor. But now the grandson comes in and says, we don't need these anymore. So, all right, who was there and how did that all go? Well, it was 10 members of the Boxing and Wrestling Commission. Uh, there sitting, uh, you know, they were, they were in a row, <laughs> right on the front row, and uh, uh, they was, and uh, they were realizing, you know, the that uh, that if I could bury them, they were going to be closed down by the state forever, because uh, they would have been shown to be uh, an un, and all I had to do was show that this was an unnecessary commission, and I'm going to go a lot further than that in this little deal. So there were also 15 state representatives in this, in this big room, and they were there basically to judge the meeting and the facts that were going to be presented by the commission and by me. I was the only guy speaking out against the commission. So the head commissioner, he, he spoke first, and he bragged about how for, for the last 40 years since they, established, they were established in 1935, how they had controlled boxing and wrestling. And he told about all the wonderful things they had done for the two sports over the years. And, uh, and so uh, when it was my turn, uh, I, I got up, I introduced myself, and, and I told him right off, I said, you know, I am a wrestler and a promoter. And then I said, I'm the grandson of the guy that even established this uh, boxing and wrestling commission in 1935, Roy Welch, who was also a wrestler and a promoter. And, uh, you know, and I said, and he worked with Governor Hill McAllister. I had all the information that I needed to, you know, uh, to create the original boxing and wrestling commission. And then I said, gentlemen, I said, this commission was specifically designed by my grandfather to simply perpetuate a monopoly for him by protecting his business from any competition inside or outside the state and using the state to do it. <laughs> I laid it out there. <laughs> and that's exactly how, how it was created and why it was created. You know, and then uh, that my grandfather, I told him, had suggested to the governor that members of the farm wars, such as the VFW, uh, veterans of the foreign war, basically, and other similar associations should be appointed to kind of oversee the commission, to collect the fees and to be paid by the state, uh, even if they had no boxing or wrestling experience. And that was the case for all the men sitting there. And I even pointed at him. I said, not a single one of those guys has any experience in boxing or wrestling. And they couldn't later on say, hey, that's a lie because it was the truth. I knew they didn't have any experience in it. So then I was allowed to ask questions. So I asked the state representatives if they knew anything about boxing and wrestling commission. And not a single one of them knew a darn thing about this particular <laughs> commission. Right? So then I, I explained to them that the commission, uh, they, when they were formed in 1935, was supposed to collect 4% of the gross ticket sales from every event and deliver that money to the state coffers. And now this commission would change to, and, and, and up that from 4% to collecting 10%. Uh, and they had no reason and nobody, and nobody to, uh, to stop them. 
So, uh, so uh, and then I explained that all boxers, wrestlers, referees, managers, and promoters, they were forced to pay to the commission uh, a license fee to get themselves a license to be able to compete in the sport, in either one of the sports. And I told them that the money for those licenses was handled by the commission as well. And now more than four times, they were more than four times what the commission was when this commission was formed in 1935. Mm. I asked the head of the commission then, and I said, uh, how much did you collect, did your organization collect, uh, and and did you present to the state for all these things that you did for just wrestling alone in the past year? Now, I knew before I went there, I was told that, you know, if you do speak, uh, you need to bring figures. If you're going to present any facts or figures, you need to bring them. Mm-hmm. And I assumed that they had told the commissioner that he'd have to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I knew he was going to have to have to sit there and, and have the facts and the figures that I just asked for to answer my question. Mm-hmm. So I'd also gotten the gross attendance figures before I went to from Jarrett and from Goulas for their major cities, the city of Memphis, how much, what were your gross houses? Uh, what was the 4%, uh, what amount did it come to? Uh, Memphis, uh, Jarrett spoke for Memphis. Uh, Goulas is one gave me his figures for Nashville and Chattanooga. To those figures, I added Knoxville and the Tri-Cities, uh, which is uh, Kingsport, uh, Johnson City, and Bristol up in the northeastern part of Tennessee. And uh, so then the head of the commission, I asked him, I said, what is those figures, you know? And, uh, and it took him probably 10 minutes to get the figure. You know, he's uh, looking in his books and he's looking and thinking and thinking. And uh, I think they took a little break. It took him so long to get the, the amount set. So, hmm. and then when he told us the amount, it was ridiculously small based on the numbers. I'd already run the numbers. I knew what the figure ought to be. And it was a ridiculously small amount based on those numbers that, you know, that I had. And they, in fact, it was a half a million dollars short, right? They had, uh, they had somehow kept themselves a half a million dollars of the state's money. Wow. And, And then I explained to the representatives, the state representatives, that my numbers didn't even include the other 450 events that were run in smaller cities through the state, throughout the state that year. So, I mean, it was a, it, now they were looking really horrible. So, so I gave a copy of my numbers to each one of the state representatives. I gave a copy to the head of the commission. Okay, so that had to open some eyes. Were, were they squirming in their seats right there on the spot reacting to it in any way? I mean, <laughs> uh, wow. It's, I mean, it sounds like you finished them off right there. Wow. <laughs> well, well, yeah, not yet, Dave. I mean, so they, they were so crooked. I mean, so so I asked the head of the commission, I said, uh, did you by chance or any of the other members on the commission here, uh, did y'all have, did y'all take any trips during the course of the year mm-hmm. and spend any of the state's money on that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and that's when they squirmed, uh, David. In fact, their heads dropped. A bunch of heads. You could oh. see which guys were guilty. They all their heads <laughs> went down. Like, oh my God! No, he don't have this. <laughs> so then I had also discovered that five of those commissioners had used that money, state money, to take themselves and their wives 
on a one-week all-expense-paid trip to Hawaii. <laughs> so there was no answer from oh. any of them to that question. None of them had any answer. They didn't say anything. Sure, it so, related to business, though, Stud. Come on. <laughs> wow. Well, one of the state representatives, he asked the same question to the head of the commission. <laughs> and so uh, the head of the commission, you know, he finally answered. He said, uh, yes, yes, uh, we we did that. <laughs> you know? And then I said, this is the, I was, uh, it was kind of fun for me at, at this point. And then I said, was that the only trip? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the heads dropped again, and then the, the, the commissioner, the head of the commission, he goes, uh, "No, there were two of those trips." <laughs> oh, that did. Did you ask if they went to Hawaii both times? Wow! <laughs> yeah, they were both to Hawaii. Are you kidding? <laughs> so, some people live on their the, lives on the state's money. Wow, some people never make that trip to the fiftieth state. Wow. All right, you really you should have been a lawyer, Ron. You were pretty much pressing all the right buttons on that one. So what was the result of all of this? Well, about about two months later, you know, I mean they didn't uh, I didn't they didn't send anything or talk to me. I got a letter. And, and it was from the state, and it said uh, the Tennessee Boxing and Wrestling Commission has been abolished by the uh -huh. Sunshine Committee. Oh. <laughs> so I killed that one, man. God. I'll tell you what, this is, to me, this is what makes the hidden history lessons just uh, the, the, the best. You killed a Boxing and Wrestling Commission in 1978 that saved not only your company a, a lot of money, but Jerry Jarrett, Nick Goulas, they had to love you as well for this. So what, was that the last time you did something like this? Well, I mean, you know, I was, I was pretty much go, going after these commissions because they were, they were all crooked and they was, you know, they were taking money that they had no right to take. And uh, so, no, it happened again. It's going to happen again about five years later. This time it's going to be in Alabama. <laughs> and it's going to happen in a completely different way. Wow. So in the next studcast, uh, you know, I'm going to do part three of the Boxing and Wrestling Commission. And uh, in this one, I'm going to be meeting like my granddad did with the governor. I'm going to be meeting with the famous governor, man, the guy that ran for president. And, uh, <laughs> and we're going to and I'm going to try to finish off the Alabama Commission. Wow, that's I want to hear more about this. I mean, I, and I want, I want to know about what were they taking you guys for? Uh, was it paid for a, each show? Did you have to cut something out for them every time? No, I mean you had a one you once a year fee, An but annual uh, fee. when you came to wrestle, uh, there would be a guy show up every night, and he would go around and he'd say, "I need to see your license. I need to see your license." Oh, if you didn't have a license. You didn't wrestle that night. You did, you went home. Yeah. You know that way. Well, you can't wrestle till you get a license again. Could you buy a license on the spot from that guy? Uh, no. The, I mean, they wanted to. They did. They wanted to really stick it in you, man. And they, and they were. It was a horrible deal for man. everybody. Everybody, and it wasn't just me. It was yeah. every yeah. state in the country. Wow. And but it, but they weren't regulated by the state. The state couldn't uh, go they, after this them? one wasn't. And I mean, a lot yeah. of others were handled differently, but this one turned out to be pretty much letting them do what yeah. they wanted to do. 
and present the state with whatever money they wanted to and say, wow. here's what you got. Just, just the fact that they got away with half a million dollars and took a couple of trips like that. That's pretty cushy right there. Yeah. Okay. Hook, hook me up with a job like that, man. I, that's a, that's cool to hear that, but uh, that, that, that kind of history. So before we take our break, can you give us the expo hall card mobile, Alabama? Let's go to Southwest Alabama, Tuesday, January 29th, 1980. Yeah, man. Uh, so the opening match was Terry Orndorff, and uh, he's facing a new masked man that called himself Big C. Eddie Boulder was going up against Big Bill Dromo. Roy Lee Welch was wrestling the now the unmasked super pro, Randy Rose. And in a United States uh, heavyweight championship match, the wrestling pro, was going to be facing the champion, Tony Charles. And in a return Southeastern Tag Championship match, Rob and I were facing Jimmy Golden, Norvell Austin, in a no-disqualification match. And in the main event, the Southeastern belt was going to be at stake again. It was going to be a no-disqualification match with the new champion, Joe LaDuke, defending against the Mongolian Stomper. And now... You know, uh, since last week and Mephisto lost that loser lead match, mm -hmm. uh, the Stomper had no manager, uh, you know. And uh, so uh, Mephisto was gone from Southeastern forever. And uh, so uh, that's an interesting uh, setup for that match. Uh, be the first time Stomper never had a manager. Okay, that is incredible. Another great card, three championship matches. We're going to find out what was promoting it on the TV show when we come back after the break, I can't wait to get this break knocked out and let's get right back into it. So stay with us when this Studcast comes back. The action continues. Hey, Studcast fans, the Stud wants to say thanks to everyone that has listened to Ask the Stud number 13 on YouTube Southeastern Rewind. It's already broken the record for the first week of any Ask the Stud question and answer show. They become more popular with every one of them that Ron does. If you've not listened to any of these tremendous historical gems, you're missing the opportunity to learn more about the sport we love. From the man that lived it and is considered as one of the most knowledgeable historians alive. Saddle up and find Ask the Stud 13 now, exclusively on YouTube Southeastern Rewind, and welcome to history. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back. Second half of this really awesome history-filled studcast. Before the break, Ron, you told us what was on the Mobile Alabama Expo Hall card for Tuesday, January 29th. We're going back to 1980. So tell us what was on the TV show to set that card up like three, three days prior to that event. Well, the TV show opened up with a big hand for Tony Charles. Uh, he was holding his United States Heavyweight Championship belt, uh, sitting there with Charlie Platt at the set. And uh, Tony was there to watch uh, his extremely important victory over the great Mephisto, uh, you know, from the week before. So not only did he retain his championship in this match, but he also retained the right to remain in Southeastern Territory because it was a loser-leave town match as well. So the last three minutes of the title match and the loser-leave match uh, was shown, basically, in the video. Video started with the great Mephisto sitting on Tony's back. He had his hands wrapped under Tony's chin. He was 
hooked him up uh, into his camel clutch hole, man, which he was famous for. And uh, it was an extremely painful hole, man. I had been in that hole uh, in Southeastern uh, when uh, Great Mephisto wrestled uh, in the, there in the 19, 1975. So Charles was obviously in pain. You could see it, man, in the video. And uh, both men were basically facing into the turnbuckles, into the corner of the ring. And the Mobile crowd was on its feet cheering for Tony, man. They loved Tony. Everybody loved Tony. Uh, and Tony grabbed Mephisto around both of his ankles. And, uh, and, and, and in this superhuman effort, I mean, his, the guy's sitting in his back. He's pulling up on his chin. Uh, I don't know where Tony got all this, uh, all this uh, strength, but he just pushed his body upward. Um, really as fast as it was unbelievable to watch it in the video and um and since the he was holding the arab's ankles when he did uh, he pushed mephisto up so fast that he went sailing head first off into the turnbuckles in the corner of the ring so um tony just collapsed uh, and but so was uh, mephisto down and then tony caught him uh, in midair uh, you know uh both of them were, were down. The crowd started chanting, go, Tony, go. They were really into it. And uh, so Mephisto got, got up in, on his feet first. Tony had rolled over and was laying on his back. And Mephisto dropped down on top of him and covered him, uh, basically. And then, and then Mephisto threw his lower body up in the air. Uh, and he was expecting to crash down on top of, of uh, Tony and maybe get the pin right there. Mm-hmm. So when he threw his body up in the air, Tony caught him in midair with both of his feet. He put his feet right in the hips of Mephisto's hips. And uh, when Mephisto's body came down on his feet, it instantly jerked Tony's body straight up off the mat and into the air. So uh, when his feet were still on, he still had his feet on Mephisto's hips. And at this point, his body was perched high above the Arab's head. And, uh, and Mephisto's back was against the ropes. So then suddenly, Tony just shot his body weight backwards, straight down toward the mat. And when he did, that catapulted Mephisto. It sent him higher than I had ever seen anybody sent in a ring by a wrestler. It just, it, he must have been 20 feet off the mat. And the crowd exploded. And so did Mephisto's body when he crashed to the mat. Wow. With a thud, man, boom, <laughs> and uh, every ounce of oxygen exploded from his body. You could hear the the the, <laughs> the oxygen burst out of his body. Charles just flipped over on top of him. The Arab never even made an attempt to kick out. He was beat right there. Studio audience, man, uh, you know they were watching this and uh, they saw this extraordinary move, man, and. They reacted just like the Mobile crowd had done. They exploded just like the Mobile crowd did. Tony beat him right there. Uh, Mephisto probably took two minutes to get up after it was all over, and Tony left the ring. Wow. So, uh, you know, uh, it was uh, uh, wow. It was just amazing that, you know, that uh, the 
they loved Tony, and everybody loved Tony. And uh, this was this was a great little opening to the show. And I'm not surprised that the the moves and the the motivation, everything with Tony in the ring that you just described, I don't think it's anything I've ever seen before. It had to be one of the best endings ever to an extremely important match. That's cool. That wow. Yeah, I, you know, and I agree, man. And it had an instant effect on the guy watching it in the dressing room with me and Rob and then uh, in the dressing room of the TV station. And that was the wrestling pro. And he was there watching it on the monitor. I saw he was intent, he, you know, and uh, and he had to, he had a championship <laughs> match coming up with Tony the next week. <laughs> and, uh, and he didn't even ask me or Rob, you know, he got so embroiled in that that move, you know, that he just bolted out of the dressing room and went straight to the set, and uh, and he 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 said he apologized to Charlie and he told Tony he said that's the greatest finish I have ever seen. He said, uh, you know, he said I've wow. always admired your skill, Tony, in the ring. He goes, but but now more than ever, considering it to be, I'm considering it to be an honor. Just to be in the ring with you, man, and to have an opportunity to maybe win your belt. And uh, it really showed the pros class. Wow. Wow. So, and he was such a technician. He knew what he was talking about. That's that's pretty pretty cool that he thought his commentary was necessary right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was like, he was like wow. He was just uh, he, engrossed in what he had just watched. So Tony got up and he shook the pro's hand and he thanked him for the compliment. And the studio crowd's applause showed their appreciation for both of these two guys. These were two of the greatest technicians in the history of the sport. Wow. (laughs) That's how you start a TV show right there, I'm telling you. So, all right, how about the first TV match? Well, Tony Charles was in the first match, you know, (laughs) and the wrestling pro was in the second TV match. So they both got wins back to back there, and they were both going to be facing each other for the United States uh, Junior Heavyweight Championship. And, uh, you know, and and all three of those major cities, uh, Southeastern fans were going to see one of the greatest babyface matches ever. Wow. All right, just hearing you describe that one move Tony Charles put on the great Mephisto to beat him. And knowing the wrestling pro, Leon Baxter is such a fan I was, and I just thought he was one of the greatest in the ring, at least locally. I regret not seeing that championship match myself. It had to be, that had to be stellar. So how about the personality profile? How'd you set that up? Well, remember the profile, Dave, uh, on the last podcast, it had Joel Duke. And, uh, and he was saying on that profile that uh, at the end of it that he was going to win the Southeastern belt from the Mongolian Stomper and in the upcoming match. And he said, I'll be coming back next week and I'm going to have the belt and I'm going to share the victory with the fans. And I do remember that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so we had never let the same person, Rob and I, uh, be on the personality profile two weeks in a row. And we didn't like to do that. It was such a nice segment in the show. We always wanted to have it with a different person. So Joe and the Stomper had wrestled each other for the belt in all three of the major cities uh, that week. And uh, the one that uh, just ended in Friday, the night before this TV show was recorded, uh, we were always in Dothan. And so in Montgomery and the Montgomery and the Dothan TV markets, those championship matches ended in a disqualification. 
uh, and the belt uh, didn't change hands. So obviously, because we were recording the TV show on a Saturday in Dothan, uh, following the Friday night matches, uh, fans didn't know that Joe LaDuke had won the belt at this point because they uh, they had seen the match in Dothan, but uh, he won the title in the match in Mobile. So uh, Rob and I knew that, and uh, we set this uh, intro up so that fans in the studio having no idea Joe Duke was a champion, they were going to find that out when we showed a tape in the and in this uh, during the profile here mm. uh, that was uh, that was going to be shown as part of the profile. So that gave us a unique opportunity to introduce Joe Duke on this TV for the first time as the new Southeastern heavyweight champion. Uh, the stomper that had the belt uh, had had that belt from December 1979 uh, since he beat Bob Armstrong for the belt in the loser leaf Southeastern match six weeks earlier. So rather than have Charlie introduce Joe LaDuke sitting on the set for the personality profile, as we usually did. We had Charlie go to the set by himself, and he introduced Joe, and Joe came out of the dressing room. And when Joe came out of the dressing room, he came out of it with the belt held over his head, just like he promised the fans from the week before, I'm going to come back next week and bring the belt to you. And uh, so, and he went over and he handed it to people in the audience the, the, on the bleachers and they passed it around while he was doing the profile uh, because Joe was such a gosh he had such a great uh, rapport with fans okay baby fish or not I don't think I've ever heard anybody hand their belt into the audience that's okay all right but that made a lot of sense it was going to add a lot of impact to the profile Dothan fans heard Joe say the week before he was going to be coming back the next week as champion with the belt. And they had no idea that he was the new champion. So how did that intro work out, Ron? Well, it was an explosion, man. I mean, when he came out holding that belt over his head and, and, uh, and it, and once he laid, he handed that belt to the person nearest him, uh, to this personality profile set. And they started passing it around it was like a celebration for that TV crowd, man. And it lasted kind of through the whole profile. Uh, fans were so into it, uh, you could hardly hear Joe talk. So they watched the end of this tremendous mobile match where Joe got his bear hug on the end of the match on the stomper. Uh, and uh, then uh, he kind of uh, run, ran the stomper back into the ring post and the referee got trapped in there and couldn't get out. And he got it kind of squashed by the two big monsters uh, jamming him into the turnbuckles. So then Mephisto came into the ring. He threw fire. Uh, uh, Joe ducked it. Uh, Stomper tried to duck it. It got burned on his back. And then finally, LeDuc ended up winning the belt. So the studio crowd cheered, man, as if they had uh, it had just happened live right there in front of them. Right? They were watching it on the monitors. And the end of that tape showed Joe being carried by those fans to the dressing room. So then the studio's crowd was, you know, it had barely slowed down when Charlie then said, I'm going to show you something else, you know? So he said, I want to show fans what happened after Joe got carried to the dressing room. And then it went back and it picked up Mephisto coming in the ring after Joe was carried out with the belt. And, uh, 
And there he stood face to face with the stopper who he had burned and he had tossed him the southeastern belt. And uh, that's when the stomper destroyed Mephisto. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> wow, the fans in the studio, they went nuts over this. It's like, wow, this is too good to be true almost. <laughs> you know, and he left him laying in the ring unconscious, went to the dressing room, and uh, they'd go haul out Mephisto. Wow, so good night, Mephisto. What? That's an amazing personality profile. So what, what was that the end of the of it, the, the profile stud? Uh, actually, no, man. Uh, uh, the end of it was a, just very quick a question, you know, and it ended with a critical observation and a question that kind of both struck Charlie and LeDuc at the same time, you know, and, uh, and, and I think uh, Charlie says, uh, Joe, uh, you know, it's great. Mephisto's gone, he goes, but. Who's going to control the Mongolian stomper now? <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought, of, <laughs> hadn't thought of that. You're kind of dealing with two monsters there. So here's the other one. What are you going to do with him? All right. So what was next on that TV? Well, it was Jimmy Golden, Norville Austin. They joined Charlie at the regular set. They watched some of their Southeastern Championship tag match with Rob and I from the from the same week as this stomper and LeDuc match. Uh, and they were telling Charlie how extremely upset they were, watching me trying to hurt both of them badly. You know, I threw them over the top rope with no reason, they said, and uh, just to get me and Rob disqualified so we could save our belts, which none of that uh, was true. So, uh, and Charlie knew it. So Charlie's, you know, and they're, they're trying to make a big deal of it. Charlie just says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. He goes, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, how about the backing up that tape? <laughs> Told the director, back up the tape and let's see the first part of this, right? And then when it started off the match, it showed Jimmy and Austin both throw Robert over the top rope when the referee wasn't looking before I threw them over. <laughs> so then Golden and Orville, they screamed like crazy, stop the tape, uh, you know, and they claim that who tampered with this? Somebody's tampered with this tape, Charlie, you know, and uh, that wouldn't happen. That didn't happen. You know, none of that ever happened. So they finished, you know, uh, by being happy that they were getting a chance at the belts again. And this time it's going to be a no disqualification. So it meant that they could do anything they wanted to do, you know, and there'd be no way we could save the belts like we had done before. And uh, that, that also ensured they could do, you know, basically what they, anything they wanted to. And, uh, you know, so, uh, and then, and then they said, what we're going to do, Charlie, is we're going to do exactly what Joe LaDuke did on that profile just a minute ago. <laughs> he said, we're going to come back next week, and we're going to parade the belts around here. <laughs> and I bet they will. All right, so how about the third match? Let's go to that one. Well, that was Rob and I, you know, and so we made pretty much quick quick work of our opponents, man, and uh, we, we, we put them both in the fuller leg lock, and, you know, uh, it was short and sweet. All right, done. Just like that. All right, how about the last TV match? Set that up for us. Well, you know, the last match was kind of about all, of, kind of about that subject that had been brought up at the end of the personality profile in the show, because the Mongolian stompers in that match, right? Mm -hmm. And we know how he's been handling every match on TV, mm. what he was doing. Mm. So now he's got nobody to control him, right? Wow. I, I don't, so I don't know if, well, if I even want to know the answer to that. So how bad was he this time when he came out? He was the worst ever. I mean, you know, 
<laughs> when when the announcer and his opponent were already in the ring, he charged straight out of the dressing room and he went right straight into the ring. And the, the announcer was horrified of him. And uh, he just left the ring. He didn't even announce the match. He just screamed and ran. And uh, and then the <laughs> Stomper went across and he grabbed the opponent that was there and he just uh, he threw him in the ropes and, and stomped him in the face and he threw him over the top rope. Then he threw the referee over the top rope. Uh, and then he turned on the crowd. So it was like, you know, his normal pandemonium times two was bad as it was normally. <laughs> this was times two. Fans were just screaming and they, they scattered. They didn't only run out the front door of the building. They ran through the studio and out the backside of the studio. <laughs> they never done that before. Hmm. It was like total chaos. And, uh, Four cameramen were trying to protect their cameras from getting run over by a fan, knocked over. And, and uh, you know, uh, you could see people crossing in front of the TV screen, fans, you know, trying to escape the mayhem. And so the studio was quickly empty, <laughs> practically empty. And, uh, mm. So so I, I, me and Rob are in the back, and we're like, hey, we got to do something here. So we said, come on, guys, we got to get the Stomper. So we went out to try to get him. And, uh and that just brought out uh, Jimmy Golden, Norval Austin, and they came to me and Rob. And then me and Rob end up having having to do something with those guys rather than being able to try to get the stomper. And, uh, you know, it was just crazy in the building. Uh, it was so bad that uh, Charlie had to ask Wayne Register, the director. He said, we got to go to black, go to black. It was pandemonium, crazy. And there was a third week in a row something like this had happened. So by this time, and like I said, this time is worse than ever. So something was going to have to be done, obviously, to stop it. Yeah, I, I think I have to agree with that. When you got like three consecutive weeks of pandemonium, as you described. So what were you going to do about it? And what was the result of the matches for January 29th, 1980? Let's go to Mobile for that. Well, I, I'll explain what we did about that. Uh, and the explanation is going to come basically and the result of this mobile card. So I'll get to what happens here. So Terry Orndorff, uh, first match, he was beaten badly by this new masked man in the territory uh, that uh, called himself Big C, and he was wearing a big black glove on his right hand. So, But he had a mask on. Uh, so Eddie Boulder uh, won his match over Big Bill Dromo. Randy Rose got a victory over Roy Lee Welch. And then in the United States Junior Heavyweight Championship match between Tony Charles and the wrestling pro, Leon Baxter, the fans were definitely the winners, man, uh, in, in, in at least two of those three championship matches. In uh, the one in Montgomery and the match in Mobile, both of those matches end up in 45-minute time limit draws. Wow. And some of the best, some of the best clean wrestling I had ever seen. Those two guys were just unbelievable. But in Dothan on the Friday night, uh, there was a completely different ending to that match. And, and it was just as good and clean in the early part of the match. Uh, Tony, uh, but then about uh, 20 minutes in or 20, 30 minutes in, uh, Tony uh, injured himself. And he, he did a leapfrog over uh, the pro and he came down awkwardly and he hurt his knee. So the pro was very concerned about Tony. I mean, you know, they, they, they had a lot of respect for these two guys for each other. And uh, he was over trying to help Tony get up, you know, and, uh, and here comes Randy Rose. 
who still had his wrestling tats on from the match right before their match uh, mm. against Roy Lee. Mm. And, uh, and he came running from the dressing room. He slid into the ring behind the pro, hit the pro in the back of the head, mm. knocked him down. Then he, uh, you know, uh, then he jerked up uh, Tony Charles and he hurled him over the top rope to the concrete. Then he grabbed the referee and he hurled him over the top rope right on top of Tony. And then uh, he took something out of his uh, tights and he started hitting the pro in the head. So soon the pro was bleeding, man. And, uh, you know, he, he always wore the white mask and uh, he was he, it was a pretty, pretty big uh, pretty big blob of red on the front of his mask. And then Rose began to try to remove his mask. He was going to take his mask off. And he almost had it off when the ro- the referee and, uh, and Tony Charles kind of limped back into the ring. When they got back into the ring, Rose saw he wasn't going to be able to get the mask off. And uh, mm. so when he got to the floor, man, Dothan was kind of like Mobile. Uh, the police had to escort him to the dressing room. It was they They wanted him, man. Wow, that kind of came out of nowhere since Rose was not even on the, like the last TV. I assumed his vendetta with the wrestling pro was done. Evidently not. Yeah, you know, uh, so it it wasn't going to be finished for good uh, the next week, but it was going to be finished for good Hmm. the next week uh, because they were going to wrestle in a loser-leave Southeastern match, the wrestling pro against Randy Rose. Then the Southeastern Tag Championship match between the champions, Rob and I, against Jimmy and Novell Austin, uh, was a no-DQ cause in it, and, uh, and it ended in a no-contest match. Uh, all four of us ended up uh, fight, fighting out of the ring, and uh, we fought all the way back to their dressing room. Then the last match of the night at Joe LaDuke, defending the Southeastern belt against the Mongolian Stomper in a return tag match. And uh, this match started with the biggest surprise of the entire night because Mongolian Stomper, Joe went to the ring first. The Mongolian Stomper arrived at ringside with his new manager, Don Carson. Carson's all dressed in a suit. He didn't have the black glove on his hand. Uh, uh, he was a longtime heel in the Gulf Coast Territory, one of the greatest, man. Yeah. So uh, he was booed so loudly. I thought the roof was coming to come off the building, man. But it was exactly what me and Rob were hoping for, you know, that uh, we could get somebody like Carson to take the place of Mephisto. Carson was about twice the talent Mephisto was. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And the match was, match was as wild and bloody as all of them were between uh, Stomper and, uh, and uh, Joe LaDuke. And uh, this one was even wilder than usual because the second referee had to come down to help out in the match. And then uh, Carson went into the ring, and when that happened, Rob and I went into the ring, Up, we're going into the ring. Golden and Austin came and grabbed us and kept us from getting into the ring. And then we started fighting on the floor. Uh, one of the reps, uh, you know, uh, came out on the ring to try to stop us from fighting, and uh, that's where Don Carson found his spot, man. He slid in there, he hit Joel the Duke with something from his pants pocket. Uh, while the other referee was with the stomper and the stomper covered LaDuke, referee counted out Joe and uh, Eddie Boulder by that time, Roy Lee Welch, Big Bill Dromo, Terry Orndorff, all of those guys were down at the ring now too. And, uh, wow, it was just one big, huge fight at the end of it. Wow. So it was totally wild in the building. And uh, when the Hills made a run for the dressing room, 
with Don Carson, uh, he, he was carrying the Southeastern Championship belt with him. <laughs> Dothan got some of that wild action as Randy Rose came back after the wrestling pro, and that last match in Mobile was going to change everything with a guy like Don Carson joining the heels. So what was the attendance in the three major cities? It seems to me l- like you really had to be stacking them up by then. Well, both Montgomery and Dothan were just under 5,000 this hmm. time. Hmm. And, uh, and, uh, but Mobile turned uh, just like it had been for weeks, man. He turned them, turned people away from Expo Hall uh, for the fourth week in a row for sure, and it might have been more than that. Wow. All right, we're almost out of time, but we've got such a good learning tree question this week. Hopefully, you can keep your answers short on this one. Shirley Thomas from Chicago, Illinois, wants to know, could you please give us a couple of more Roy stories today? Of course, Roy, your grandfather. So you got time for a couple of stories? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so, man. Uh, okay, Shirley from Chicago. Uh uh, let's see, let's give her a run. Hey, uh, hey, don't even pretend like you were going to say no. <laughs> I can't say no to it. I kind of love telling the stories anyway. So, uh, so, uh, I, I want to tell, I don't think I've told, I, I got the first one that comes to my mind. I don't think I've ever told before. Uh, and it's about when, uh, dad was a little boy about five years old. Roy was wrestling in Columbus, Ohio. And, uh, Somebody down the street found out that he was uh, in, he was the son of a wrestler. And, uh, and that turned out to be a bad deal for him because there was a bully uh, who was about uh, three years older than Dad was. And uh, the bully was really giving Dad heck every time he went down to pay with his friends. And uh, my dad had real curly hair, and he wore a baseball cap all the time. So... Uh, uh, evidently, Dad had been going down, and uh, this bully would uh, pick a fight with him. And uh, then, when he got the fight started, he would knock Dad's hat off. And the first thing he would do was grab a double handful of Dad's hair, and he would just start uh, jerking him around and get him on the ground. And you know, it just so Dad finally ended up telling Roy about it. You know, and he said, hey, "I'm having a little problem." and uh, Roy asked him, how, what, how, what, how does it happen, and what does he do to you, and all that. And he said, here's what we're going to do. So, so he, he took his shears, and he shaved Dad's head, all his hair. And, he, <laughs> and then he said, he said uh, okay, he said, he put the baseball cap on him, and he said, I want you to go down there. Uh-huh. And he goes, when this guy gets on you, and he knocks their hat off, and he says, uh, and he reaches for that hair. He goes, I want you to get yourself a big double handful of his hair. And he said, I want you to just start yanking it and jerking it. And when you get him down on the ground, uh, just to uh, jump on him, stomp him and whatever. You know, so well, that's what happened. Dad went down and the bully got on him, knocked the hat off, uh, Dad grabbed him by the head. Dad was only probably five years old. The bully's about seven or eight years old. And uh, anyway, uh, he said the bully was crying. <laughs> Roy asked, how did it go when he got back? He said, oh, he was crying, Dad. <laughs> I guess he was crying. Oh, my God. <laughs> so that was kind of Roy's, 
Roy was very straight. He had ways of doing things that were a little bit different. And, uh, and then, uh, and, uh, thank you for just a second, Shirley, here. Uh, I, I, don't, I got another one. I don't know that I've, I've told this very much. Maybe, maybe never. Uh, but um, uh, everybody knows that Roy trained one of the first Rice and Bears. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and I, you know, nobody's ever asked me how Roy found this bear. How did Roy come by the bear named Ginger? He named her Ginger because he's a female bear. And uh, so, and I remember Roy telling me this story. Uh, and he said that he had wrestled, he had drove from Dyersburg, Tennessee, to Bluefield, West Virginia, two-lane roads, which is, wow, gosh, back in 1930s. Uh, and he he said that after the matches was over, he was in the car by himself. He had gone on this trip by himself. And he said when he came, uh, started back home, well, it's a one-lane road, and uh, you're in West Virginia, and it's, a hill. It's, it's wild and wonderful. That's what they say about West Virginia. You're liable to see anything on those roads at night. And uh, and Roy came upon a dead bear in the middle of the road. Uh, had been hit by a car. It's uh, a female bear. Mm. And uh, and she had a cub. And uh, so he he got out. He saw that there was no way to help her. You know, nothing he could do to help the bear. But uh, then he, he told me, he said, I got to thinking. And he goes, What's this little cub going to do? What's going to happen to this little cub? Mm -hmm. uh, and he was afraid that she'd stay there on the road, and when a car came, it would hit her, yeah. hit the cub. Mm. So he picked up the cub, and he, he got his trunk open in his car, and he put that cub into the trunk of his car. Mm -hmm. And he drove that cub back to Tennessee with him. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, he really didn't know what to do with her, so – he got, he just, he fed her and then he fed her three days and he fed her five days. And, and then he got to, Roy became the mama of that cub basically. Mm -hmm. And then he took that cub, she grew up and he, he taught her to wrestle. Uh, uh, and, uh, and he did, there was, she was the only wrestling bear ever that uh, had all of her teeth and all of her claws because she, the bear, the little cub, grew to love him and respected. She was scared of him, really scared of him. And that's how you train a bear. You got to have, they got to have fear for you. Uh, but he didn't, he would never treated her mad, but he only had to shout and that would stop her from doing whatever mm -hmm. he wanted her to stop doing. And so, uh, he trained her. He never pulled her canine teeth. He never pulled her claws out like other people did when they trained wrestling bears. Yeah. Uh, she was intact just like she was all of her life. And uh, that was a real testament to, to how much he cared for her. And, uh, and she cared for him too, man. Well, he wore, and, and the bear, whose name was Ginger, right? Ginger, he called okay. her Ginger. Wore a muzzle during the matches. Yeah, but that and was the put, and he put mittens on her, on her, on her hands, right. on her feet. Yeah, because so, she had claws. Yeah, you so know? this bear, this bear was not messed with in any way, as you said. Uh, teeth still there, 
claws still there. And those are the, uh, those are the parts of the bear that, that uh, are, are really serious. So, wow. Okay. All right. You've got rattlesnake stories. You've got stories of your grandfather running down the road at a high rate of speed, getting pulled over, flashing badges. You've got a ton of stories. We, we call them Roy stories. Episodes one through five at tnstud.com of this very studcast. This number, the one we're on right now is number 335. There's a ton on episodes one through five when this thing was just, this studcast thing was just getting started. Those were the stories that you told in the very beginning, and they're really amazing. I remember, I remember most of those, and when you mention them sometimes, it's like, wow, I had forgotten that one. But your grandfather, the Roy stories are, are, are really a ton of fun. TNstud.com. You'll find every studcast ever done, including this one. But one through five, the Roy stories, you can't miss. All right, so what about next week? How do you top it? Where do we ride next week, stud? Well, we're going to go get into part three, man, of the Boxing and Wrestling Commission story. Uh, and this one's going to continue about five years after the one I talked about today in Tennessee. We're going to be working on shutting down an Alabama uh, Boxing and Wrestling Commission. And in order to do it, I'm going to end up uh, at the state capitol again. And I'm going to be meeting with one of the most famous governors of all time. Uh, then the Southeastern cards are going to be uh, getting stronger every week. Wow, uh, bringing in Carson was going to make a huge difference. No one has a Southeastern uh, Championship uh, uh, Canadian Lumberjack match. We're going to have the, the first one of those uh, with Joe LaDuke. We're going to have a Texas Tornado Championship tag match in the next one. We're going to have a loser leave Southeastern match in the next one, too. And then hopefully we're going to have another learning tree question. Oh, good deal. All right, so another amazing stud cast. I don't know what you can say after that, except we'll get here next week and do it all over again. That's the amazing part. Another classic, in my opinion, Ron, no doubt. A little bit of everything right there. You killed your first boxing and wrestling commission. You added Don Carson to an already great crew in a territory selling out most nights. And you gave us a couple of more Roy Welch stories. I think that's pretty awesome. Hey, folks, you know how to get hooked up with Ron on social media find ron on facebook ron fuller the tennessee stud like follow him there automatically become friends with a living legend on twitter or x exact same thing look for ron fuller welch on twitter or x and follow him there too check out the fantastic website we mentioned this earlier tnstud.com this studcast every studcast ever done as we said and those roy stories episodes one through five go way 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 back in the way back machine and learn it all in the very beginning stages of the sport of wrestling. You can also shop the stud store where you can get 43 super stud cast, four different eight by 10 photos, the thrilling lion novel Brutus personally autographed to you and t-shirts still on sale for only $15.99, all with absolutely free shipping tnstud.com and subscribe now how can you not at youtube southeastern rewind get the best in old school wrestling find 389 videos the last 112 stud cast including this one 52 stud stories 97 short rides with the stud and now 
13 great Ask the Stud question and answer shows exclusively on YouTube, Southeastern Rewind. It is the best deal in old school wrestling. Ryan, you get the last word. Well, you know, I just uh, like, uh, like as always, man, I want to thank all of my listeners and supporters out there. Uh, please tell your friends about us and uh, take care of yourselves and others and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller Welch in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at David Summers Productions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.